Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Holding Pocket Welcome to another episode of The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you prepare to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, Rabbi Hollies. Hello, Kat. Hello, Kat. Now, I have to just say that I sort of try and think, well, how are we going to start the conversation this time? And mm. we've already, while we were waiting, talked about favourite planes, which I don't have one of, but you <laughs> two do. War planes. World War II. Sorry, yes. sorry, sorry. But yes. we did two German ones. I'm good on German ones too, are you? Well, I know the odd, obvious ones. MEBF 109, the Heinkel 111, that stuff. Yes, and the Stuka and the Messerschmitt. So I can't even join into this conversation. (laughs) The other one was whether it would hurt to be eaten by a shark, I think. Mm. One of my elder son's friends had his leg removed on a beach in Cape Town. And apparently, I mean, he said the most terrifying part of it was not knowing where the shark was. Once he was being attacked on his surfboard, it was when you couldn't see it that it was absolutely chilling. And when you saw the dorsal fin or whatever, it's almost not a relief, but at least you knew what you're dealing with. It's like a sort of spider in your bedroom, but... A million times worse. Yes. What did he do? <laughs> well, he technically died and then was brought back to life on the beach by a doctor. So huge blood loss. I yes, guess. and shock. I think. So what happened? He was surfing along, and the next thing he knew, he was being bumped, knocked off the surfboard, and then actually he now, with one leg, still surfs. I would never go back in oh, the well, ocean. Good for him. Yeah. Does he know which kind of shark took his leg? Well, I don't know, but it is a very big ground for the Great White round there. In fact, Robin Island, where Mandela was imprisoned for so long, Robin means seal down there, and that's the sort of food area for Great White sharks. I've got a South African chunk in my bit this week, actually. Just a little bit, but Cape Town, your old old girl. Yes. I love Cape Town. Excellent. Well, there we go. So, <laughs> just where you go from here. I love it because it's gore. We've started off with some gore. Yes. But with a sort of cheery look at Cape Town in the backdrop. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> How else could we start? I think we should just go on then, shouldn't we? Yes. To, to all the sort of cheeriness. And we're going to start with you, Charles. And mm. you've been looking into people I don't really know that much about. I know who they are, but not much more. And that's Laurel and Hardy. Yes. Well, Laurel and Hardy are acknowledged as one of the great comedy duos of all time. 
And interestingly, they started off in the silent era. They made 106 films together, actually, between 1921 and 51. But they're one of the very few acts that progressed absolutely smoothly from the silent era to the talkie. And I think that's really down to the fact that their physical humor translated easily and the visual and verbal gags were obviously so brilliant that they could straddle those eras with great success. And somebody said one of the reasons they were so popular is because in a way they're children in a grown up world. And there is a sort of innocence about them, the set upon people always up against authority figures, whether it's an irate employer or an angry landlord or whatever it was. And this was really to the point during a large part of their early career was set in the Great Depression and Americans needed something to laugh about. And we have two very different people. One of the reasons they think that they made the transition so successfully from the silent era was because you had the Englishman, Stan Laurel, the skinny one, if I can put it that way, and Oliver Hardy, who was from the South in America and was also actually a very good singer. So that could be used very usefully in the talkie era. I'm going to start by looking briefly at Oliver Hardy, the rotund one. Poor man. He was six foot two. He's a large, large chap. And he used to battle weight problems and fluctuated between 300 and 350 pounds. So sort of 135 to 155 kilos. And in fact, he had an early serious career in movies before he met Stan Laurel. And he was known as a heavy, which was a large, scary villain. And that's what he made his career at. And he, he had been in hundreds of movies by the time that he was paired off with Stan Laurel. He was known by his friends and family as Babe. And it was a nickname that came from a barber when he went to have his hair cut as a young man. The barber teased him for his baby face. And he wasn't christened Oliver Hardy. His real name was Norval Hardy, but his father died when he was very young and he wanted to remember him forever. So he stuck Oliver in front of his name. And meanwhile, I mentioned, you know, Stan Laurel, an Englishman. In fact, he never took up American citizenship. He was an Englishman until he died. And he was born in Ulverston in Lancashire. And he moved around in northern Britain, Bishop Auckland, Gainford and Glasgow. He had acting in his blood. His father was a theatre manager. His mother was an actress. And he was a boy comedian, like a principal boy, really, in the theatre. And in 1910, he set sail for New York City because he had been recruited by a music hall troupe, very famous one at the time, called Fred Carnos. And he shared his cabin on the way to New York with one Charlie Chaplin and spent two years touring North America with Chaplin as his understudy. And we've touched on Chaplin before, actually, because he was in the piece I did about the workhouse and poverty, his mother being sadly committed to what was known as a mental asylum at the time. Anyway, I suppose with Stan Laurel, he he started really as a minor star, but his primary income came in America from writing gags for others until he joined Hal Roach, his manager in 1926. And he was soon paired off. They first filmed together, Laurel and Hardy, not as a duo, but as two of the actors in a 1921 film called The Lucky Dog. And then their first official film was called The Second Hundred Years in 1927. And a man supervising the film, I suppose like a producer, Leo McCary, and he insisted that they permanently work together as a duo because the chemistry was so fantastic. And you have two very, very different characters that complemented each other. But what they knew was that they had something very, very special. And Laurel, the Englishman, the skinny one, as I might just call him, 
had a business brain. He was a, a perfectionist and he would work on gags and routines with huge care and attention. But Oliver Hardy was more of a, he had a joie de vivre and he used to go out partying and turn up as a, an actor and just nail it every time. He was just a natural. We have this sort of series of quite good things they did of great films. Among the most famous in the 30s are Pack Up Your Troubles and also one I think is the best called Sons of the Desert. And actually, Fezzes. since. Sorry? Fezzes. There are Fezzes in there. There were Fezzes in there. That's your subject today. Sorry, anticipating myself. <laughs> <laughs> they did wear Fezzes. And also, since the 60s, after the demise of both men, the Sons of the Desert is the name of their appreciation society. And one I insist you all consider watching. It's a classic short. It's called The Music Box from 1932. It's basically a very funny movie about Laurel and Hardy trying to deliver a piano up lots of stairs. And that won the Oscar in 1932. It's the first winner of the Academy Award for Best Short Comedy. And they did lots of short films. It was interesting that at this stage, it was normal to do lots of shorts and then a few feature films. And the shorts finished in 1935. This went out of fashion. And so we have uh, other great films. There's from the late 30s, Bonnie Scotland, Way Out West and The Blockheads. And what was the secret, really? It was in the character development. It was in what they called milking, which was getting as many gags out of one situation as you could. You built uh, one on top of the other. And then they had very clear brand recognition, the cuckoo song. It was their sort of signature tune was played over the beginning of, of their... There we are, Richard. Brilliant. So you know something funny is coming. Yeah. And their bowler hats. Somebody and their fezzes, Charles. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, and their fezzes, of course. <laughs> Much underrated. And somebody once wrote that their characters are two supremely brainless, eternally optimistic men, almost brave in their perpetual and impregnable innocence. That's lovely. And that sums it up. And also they were devoted to each other, which was very sweet. And they just got on with just never giving up. Complicated. Stan Laurel was quite a complicated person, I think, wasn't mm. he? And Oliver Hardy's circumstances were not always easy. I think they were quite complicated. They lived life to the full. Many, many wives each, and not always happy wives. Two of them were pursuing Oliver Hardy to the end of his days for money. And Stan Laurel had four wives, one of whom he remarried, and a common-law wife. There was a lot of alcoholism. Oliver Hardy's wife, the second one, suffered from alcoholism endlessly in and out of sanatoriums, very, very troubled private lives, both of them. And also financially very tricky because they were just jobbing actors, really. Even when they were stars, they didn't save a lot and they didn't own their films. So any reruns, the money didn't go to them. There's a parallel, isn't there, with the actors from the Carry On series in Britain, you know, huge, huge stars. And yet they never met, they were just on wages. They didn't own a chunk in the way that uh, That makes sense. Yes, well, sadly makes sense that you could be compromised by the business in such a way. But I mentioned Stan Laurel's perfectionism, and he worked out various things which he insisted on. So one is he always had his hair cut with very short back and sides. And this was done on purpose. It was what he called his fright wig. And it meant that if he took his bowler hat off, he could pull his hair in either shock or amazement. Classic yeah. moments in those comedies. And also, he wanted to always be seen as flat-footed, so he never wore heels on his shoes to make that more pronounced. They both always insisted that their faces were filmed flat, 
There was no use of shadows or angles to make them anything other than clowns. And they used to mm. insist on the white paint and the pancake makeup of a clown appearance to accentuate the comedy without the viewer realizing what was going on. You know, they had the sad-faced Laurel and the sort of derby-hatted Hardy. They were a very good contrast and a complementary force of comedy. And they fell out eventually with Hal Roach, so endless deals that... Hal Roach was a very, very clever producer, kept his two stars on separate contracts, so he had control over them. And in fact, in 1939, he paired off Oliver Hardy with a man called Harry Langdon in a, in a movie called Zenobia. Basically, Harry Langdon pretended to be Stan Laurel during that movie. And they split with Roach and signed with 20th Century Fox, and were also on stage a lot. Their final film was a terrible turkey called Atoll K or Utopia. It was an appalling movie uh, made with French and Italian linguistic problems. The production problems went on and on. Stan Laurel was in bad health. Both men suffered bad health. If it's not too harsh to say Hardy's obesity and Laurel's smoking and, and the drinking and the culture they were in meant they were often physically compromised. They went on a stage tour of Europe in 52 and 53, and their only US TV appearance was in This Is Your Life in 1954. Uh, and the American audience were stunned because they thought they were dead. They didn't know because they'd been away for so long uh, doing their European stint that they just assumed they had died. Rather good film, isn't there, recently? Yes, very good. It's a Steve, Steve Coogan, Coogan movie. Yeah, it's very good. It. Oh, right, you're, you're man. And then in 1955, Without knowing it, they made their final public appearance on a BBC documentary about the Grand Order of the Water Rats, a, a British variety organisation. And they end it with a very fond farewell to the public, not knowing that that would be the last time they were on screen. And I mentioned Hardy's weight problems. In 1956, he was told that he was seriously ill and he had to do something about it. And he dropped 150 pounds wow. very rapidly. And that probably took the sort of legs off his resistance and he had a series of strokes and at the end of 1956 he had a stroke that left him speechless and he died broke and Laurel refused to go declined would be the right word to go to the funeral and just said babe would understand but in fact Laurel by this stage was also suffering from ill health and Laurel vowed never to work again in front of the camera as a tribute to his friend great great friend you know in a turbulent life. They were each other's closest friends. And he stuck to this, even though he was approached in 1960 by Stanley Kramer to be in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. But he did in 1960. Uh, Laurel was given a special Oscar for services to comedy, but he was too, too ill to accept. And he lived a very quiet life in a modest seaside apartment. And some of the greats would go to see him, the comedy greats, Dick Van Dyke, Jerry Lewis, and all these people would go to him. And he lived this quiet life getting a lot of fan mail. He answered every single fan letter personally. And he died in February 1965. His last words of advice to comedians who followed him was, have a hell of a lot of fun, and also not to take themselves too seriously. But the artistic debt has been paid to them, not just by great comedians like Steve Martin, John Cleese, and Peter Sellers, but by artistic greats, Samuel Beckett, Harold Pinter, mm. and René Magritte. They were seriously influential comedians of a type that very rarely comes along. And my favorite fact is really obscure. We are down a rabbit's hole, rabbit hole's rabbit hole on this one, which is that Stan Laurel 
was born Arthur Stanley Jefferson. And there are various ideas and theories as to why he changed his name. One of the leading one is that he didn't like having a surname, a family name, with 13 letters in it. The second is rather similar to that, that he thought if he had a shorter name, he could get more elevation in credits outside cinemas, etc. And the third one, which also has some credibility to it, was that he once saw a drawing of a Roman general, Scipio, wearing a laurel wreath, and he particularly liked the idea. That's interesting, isn't it? The thing I didn't know, and it made perfect sense when you said it, was that he understudied Chaplin. Yes. Mm. So there's something about his walk, his mm. kind of slightly retiring manner that's very Chaplin-esque. Well, it's interesting. There's a strange dynamic between the two greats. So when Laurel was alive, he talked about his friendship with Charlie Chaplin endlessly. But meanwhile, Charlie Chaplin, when he wrote his very detailed autobiography, doesn't mention Laurel once. And I wonder mm. if there was a sort of jealousy of the man who was meant to be his understudy becoming pretty much nearly anyway as great as him. Interesting, isn't it? You would have thought Charlie Chaplin would know himself to be unassailably the king, but because you don't know that until history judges, do you? That's so true. But, you know, understudies taking the limelight is a tricky one, isn't it? Well, indeed so. I can remember once we had a support act when I was in the communards. We were playing the Albert Hall. We had a support act on. And I heard them at the sound check and I said to Jimmy, oh, they're good, aren't they? And then we listened to them and I said, they're really good, aren't they? <laughs> they thought, mm, maybe a bit too good, aren't they? It was Terence Trent Darby. Oh, yes. Yeah, he had his moment in the sun. I don't know if you remember that name, but he was huge for a couple of years in the, what, uh, 80s? Yeah, 87, something like that, 88, yes. like that. But yes. it was with the support act. You just thought, you can be too good as a support <laughs> yeah. act. Yeah. You don't really want people to come home and remember that. Remember the support act. As opposed act. to yeah, you. Quite, no, that, I can quite. see that being a problem. I'm going to have to go and watch some of these, I think. I feel like I've missed yeah. out. The piano moving one is, is a it's work It's beautiful. Of and of course, so many things derive from that. The Plank, that famous British comedy, has to be a derivative of that, I think. And that was Hal Roach, wasn't it? It was, was it? Hal Roach, yeah. yeah. Fred Carnot as well, these gatherings of people. I kind of wonder, was there something, a peculiar chemistry to those people, or did it just happen to be all the good people in the same place at the same time? Well, interesting too, that two of the greatest comedians of the 20th century who would be assumed to be American by many are both British. Yeah, there you are. Now, Richard, yes. I know that you're dying to get this because you've already been trying to get it into Charles's <laughs> segment here, so we're going to have to let Hang you go ambush. now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ex now as well. Yeah, <laughs> no, you should. Please, away, you really yeah. should. So can you tell us all about the fairs? Well, yes. Now the fairs, one of my favorite. Steam with me. <laughs> so I was in Egypt recently and we had an evening of folklore, which of course strikes fear into the heart of any person <laughs> on holiday. But actually there was a great band came on and they were all wearing fezzes. And I thought, well, that's interesting, the fez still being worn in Egypt, not knowing that the fez was in fact outlawed in Egypt in 1958 by NASA. The fair's a controversial hat, then a controversial hat always. 
Where does it come from? Well, Fez, of course, is a city in Morocco. And it's thought the name of the hat comes from that city, although it could actually be a word from Turkish anyway. But the reason why Fez became associated with that hat is Fez was where the cornel tree grew, and it was from the bark and berries of the cornel that created the crimson dye that gives the Fez its distinctive or most distinctive colour. You can have Fezes in all sorts of different colours. What is it? Well, essentially, it's a conical felt hat with a tassel or sometimes it's a little tump as it's called and it's brimless a friend of mine said to me it's the most stupid hat ever made and i said what's what's wrong with the fez and she said well it's got no brim so it's no good in the sunshine doesn't get the sun out of your eyes or anything why does the fez have no brim that's such a good question i've never thought of it no because it's worn by muslims and muslims observing salah daily prayers touch their foreheads to the ground. Oh, very so you don't want yes. a hat with a peak, particularly, yes. or a brim. So that's one of the reasons why the fez is the fez. When did it come about? It's fascinating, this. Well, it was the Ottomans who basically popularised the fez. One of the greatest Ottoman sultans of all, Mahmoud II, had a bit of a to-do. And this was the auspicious incident of 1826. Aren't you glad there was an auspicious incident? <laughs> In 1826, the kind of elite military unit in the Ottoman Empire were the Janissaries. Now, the Janissaries started out as they were recruited from across the empire. They were brought up specifically to be warriors. But over time, as they became more important and more powerful, it became sort of hereditary, immensely powerful and immensely conservative. And in the end, the tail wagged the dog. So the Janissaries decided the elements of a sultan's rule. And if a sultan should displease the Janissaries, they'd dispatch him. Mahmoud II took them on and won and defeated them in the auspicious incident of 1826 where Janissary power was finally broken because he saw that the Ottoman Empire was sclerotic and that it needed to be revived, it needed to have new energy, it needed to modernise for a world in modernity, of course, which was changing hugely. Ottoman Empire at its greatest extent was one of the greatest empires the world had ever seen. But great empires are always... One of the big challenges, isn't it, is not mm. lapsing into conservatism, maintaining the status quo. So the Janissaries were dispatched, and they literally were dispatched, many of them beheaded in the Fort of Blood, the Tower of Blood in Thessaloniki. But anyway, it's called the White Tower now, but it was the Bloody Tower. And what Mahmoud II wanted to do, he recruited a new militia, a modern military based on European models, and they needed a new hat. Now, the turban was traditionally the dress of the Turkish or the Ottoman military, but he didn't want turbans because, again, in common with sort of large empires we'd around for a long time, they'd evolved an elaborate set of etiquette and sumptuary considerations about who wore what, and the turban became a symbol, which was actually rather divisive. And Mahmoud II wanted a hat that would unite and not divide. So the fez was brought back to Istanbul by Turkish sailors of the Turkish Navy, who I think picked it up possibly in North Africa, some say in Greece. It was simply a red felt cap. Now, that red felt cap, when it started appearing in Ottoman lands, was sometimes adorned with a turban. So you would have the red hat with a turban round it. You can see through headgear, changing culture, changing values, changing image of the Ottomans. Anyway, eventually the Fez was established. And I think it was in 1827, 50,000 fezes were ordered for the Ottoman armies and also the officials and also the bureaucrats, the emerging middle classes, the emerging professional classes. The fez became a sign of what they did. Tunis, 
was the place to get your fez in those days. Manufacturing of fezes in Tunis was absolutely enormous and huge. Wool, felt. Okay, you take it, you shape it usually around a sort of structure made out of straw. And then through the application of heat, the fez is shaped. It's quite an elaborate, bespoke sort of job. And then distributed among those who are entitled to wear it. Different fez shapes attributed to Osman shape. There's a Muhammad Ali shape, all different shapes of fez, depending on which Ottoman ruler they went to. Then the discovery of aniline dyes, synthetic dyes, in Austria-Hungary made a huge impact. So Fez production shifted from Tunis mostly to a little town in what is now the Czech Republic, but was then Bohemia, where because of the synthetic dye, they were able to churn out Fezes absolutely galore. And it was said that you could buy a Fez that cost less than the price of the wool that went into it. It was made in such quantities until 1908. And of course, you'll remember the dual kingdom annexed Bosnia-Herzegovina. So as a result, Istanbul, outraged by this, burnt all their fezes. There was a fez protest. All those fezes were sort of burnt. So they had to find new places of sourcing their fezes. And so the fez continued as the symbol of a new game in town and symbolising the common purpose and interests of all those of status in the Ottoman Empire. But then what happens? Well, we hit the 20th century. And after all the business in 1908 with this sort of Fez revolt, well, 1922, the Ottoman Empire collapses after the calamity of the First World War. And a new leader emerges to replace the Caliphate and the Sultan. And that, of course, is Kemal, Mustafa Kemal, Kemal Ataturk, as he later came to be known. And he thought, we need a new hat. Because he began to see the fairs no longer as the sort of hat of a new meritocratic Ottoman Empire, but as the sort of representative headgear of the Ancien Regime. So in 1925, he passed a law, or rather the Turkish Republic passed a law, which mandated the abandonment of the fairs for the brimmed hat. So they started dressing in Western dress as a sign of modernisation, as a sign of Turkey coming together broadly on the terms of a kind of Western democracy. Now this caused a huge hoo-ha because the fairs was also seen as something that was respectably worn by Muslims. And in Anatolia, rather a conservative religious part of Turkey, there was a resistance to the imposition of the hat over the fairs and they insisted on wearing fezes. And this caused a huge hoo-ha. And it became at one point such a hot political issue. The fez law was considered to be one so fundamental to the principles of the Turkish state that it could not be repealed, even if it was deemed to be unconstitutional. It was that important. And there were some imams in Anatolia who demanded that their people should continue wearing their fezes. And they said, well, no, you can't. And eight of them were hanged for wearing the wrong sort of hat. So what happened to the fez? Well, the fez, of course, was not simply an Ottoman item of headgear or a Turkish item of headgear. It was all around the Levant, for example, and different fezes in different sorts of places. They went in and out of favour. In Egypt, as I said, the fez was widely worn. Were they always red, though? Is The fez has to be no, red. No. Some fezes were black, some were white. 
They come in different colours, but red principally because of the dye. They're worn, of course, now by lots of the fraternal organisations in the United States. So the Elks, for example, they wear fezes, and there are others. Laurel and Hardy, of course. In most countries now, it's worn by Islamic religious professionals in Egypt, for example, because Nasser, as I said, banned the fez in 1958. Again, as a symbol of something he wanted to modernise. He wanted to show, put a clear distinction between how people looked in pre-revolutionary Egypt and post-revolutionary Egypt. But there was one fez he couldn't get rid of, and that was the Ushar. You see it now, and it's a fez that's surrounded by a white cloth. Uh-huh. In a way, it's a recapitulation of that old thing about the turban wrapped around the fez. Yes. So you have the fez where there's a tight white cover, and you will see it worn by Islamic scholars. And presumably only men wear them? Some women wear fez, but it's okay. principally male dress. Occasionally yeah. it is worn by women, but only very, very occasionally. And fezes have been worn by all sorts of people. Did you know the king's African rifles? They wore fezes. There was also, believe it or not, a Waffen-SS Bosniak unit in the Second World War, made up mostly of Bosnian Muslims, who wore a fez with the Totenkopf, the death's head, on the front. French military units recruiting soldiers from overseas, like the French Foreign Legion, not actually the French Foreign Legion, but units like that, they would also wear the fez too. Here's the South African fact, Charles. Yes. The last fez maker in Cape Town retired last year and no one took on his business. He lived in Kensington, in Cape Town, and he made fezes principally for the Malay community there. If you're of Malay origin in Cape Town, you would often wear a fez, but no one to make them anymore because he retired last year and no one took over his fez business. So that's a bit sad. That is. Would you like my favourite fact? Yes, please. My favourite fact, step with me, if you will, to the crowded streets of Cairo, where I was only a little while ago, where it was my very good fortune to visit the shop of Mr Abdul Nasser Bassett, who is, I think, the last fez maker in Egypt. He's certainly the longest established fez maker in Egypt. His shop has been there for 130 Mm. years. He makes the ujar, but also he uses, he uses this copper mould in there to get the right shape. The copper moulds have been in use making fezes since the 15th century. They are 600 years old. Him and his son, his son is following his footsteps, make, I think they turn out about 100 fezes a day, but nothing like in the volume that they used to. So if you are in Cairo, I would recommend a visit to Mr. Bassett's shop and you can there buy a fez, all bespoke, made to your specifications. I love a hat. I don't have the head for a hat. What's your fave? Well, the hats I wore for work, so Berettas or Canterbury caps, but I look yes. like yes. I look like a depraved murderer in a Canterbury <laughs> cat and I just look sinister in a Beretta. But I do love a fez. And you can get short fezes, it's not the big conical fezes. Mm. But Why did hats go out of fashion? If you look at all those pictures from whether it's a football crowd in the 30s or the streets of London in the 50s, everyone had a hat on and now nobody does. Yeah, well, actually they do. Oh. Baseball cap. Yeah. Yes. So there are some people who still wear hats, but it, or a beanie. Can't too much a hat revolution now, but it really was, there really was a revolution around. If you wore a trilby or something in London today, you'd be marked out as an eccentric, wouldn't well, you? Well, I, I suppose... Perhaps you could. I mean, the pork pie hat yes. has made a bit of a relation. In the Victorian Edwardian days, of course, the smoking hat. Oh, Do you remember yes. the smoking jacket? Yes. Often people would wear a red felt, a sort of short, but yeah. with a tassel, which was a fez. Why that would be, perhaps Turkish cigarettes, perhaps oh. Orientalism, perhaps suggestion yes. of it. 
I don't know if somewhere in one of the wardrobes well, in your I, house you've got also, a Also, I believe smoking jackets were there to absorb the smell of the smoke. You know, you just put it on for that. Maybe the hat was to stop your hair getting smelly. Smelling of... Yeah. I didn't know that. So the smoking know. jacket yeah. absorbed the smell of... Sort of heavy cloth. Yeah. There we go. There you go. Fezzes. Well, Kat, Very what are good. you going to entertain well, us I with today? I don't think I'm going to get any fezzes into mine, unfortunately. Oh, I think... <laughs> No hats, really. Sorry. And how about a large and slim comedian? Can you get them? In? Mm, no, 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 okay. no, no. There's a wolf. Okay, no, that's vaguely amusing. So this is one that's been suggested by one of our listeners called Keith, and it's going to be about. <laughs> Sorry. Why are you laughing at Keith? No, 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 it's, no it's really nice. It's my middle name. <laughs> no, it's a lovely. Is it? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a not, great name. Sorry. Sorry. I've got a middle name of Morris. So. <laughs> Morris is really bad, but Keith is not good. It rhymes with teeth. No. Yes, <laughs> What's your middle true. name? I don't have one. No, Norway has middle names. They're not rationed. Some, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> only it's actually one. Brunhilde, you're not telling us. <laughs> that would be nice. I quite like that. If there's sort of something very Scandinavian. No, I don't have one. It's quite common not to have one, actually. Has your son got a middle name? No. Nope. Neither of my children. That. I got three. You've, You've got, got three middle names? Two middle names. I got uh, Charles Edward, which is absolutely fine. Morris is more challenging. <laughs> but I had an American grandfather called Morris. But there are lots of Morrises, aren't there, in your family? Only on my mother's side, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, back anyway, to your back recommended to the piece. Uh, so my topic is St. Edmund, who was England's patron saint before yeah. the other one came along with his dragon. Yes. And uh, I do love this story, especially because it brings me back to the Vikings as well, obviously. So we have to go back in time. We have to go back to the 9th century and to the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of East Anglia. And so this is Eastern England, one of the slightly smaller but quite successful kingdoms. And in about eight 855, this man called Edmund becomes the king and he's part of the Wolfing dynasty. So I think they call it Little Wolf or it means something like that. Uh, so they've got this sort of wolf theme to the whole dynasty, which becomes important later on. So he was quite a successful ruler and uh, he was doing his thing quite well until 865 when the great heathen army appears on the shores. And this is my sort of comfort zone, really. <laughs> and um, this army, this sort of large Viking force arrives in England and they land in East Anglia somewhere. So that's the first day. They sort of wreak havoc, really, over the next 10 years. Cat, so they start out here. So early. Mm. But I once heard they landed at Hunstanton. Do you know anything about that? We don't know where they landed. Just that it was East Anglia at that oh. point. Um, I wonder where that story came about from. Probably oh. locally. Hunstanton <laughs> I think that's the sort of, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they arrive here and um, Edmund actually strikes an agreement with them. So he allows them to overwinter and gives them horses in return for not getting killed, basically. That seems to go fairly well. They stay for the winter and then they go north. They go to York, take over York. They go to Nottingham and they're quite successful. They take over lots of kingdoms. And then they come back in 869 to Thetford and go back to their camp. And then somehow this agreement that they had with Edmund breaks down. So Edmund decides to attack them, which is a really, really bad idea from Edmund. And they fight and the Vikings win. Now we know from a short record in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the Vikings win and then it says, and the king dies. And that's all we hear. But then there's a later I mean, source. Yeah. Over succinct, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Quite straightforward. Yeah. Can I just interrupt? Because my great-grandfather kept diaries and I was so excited. They'd been locked up in a bank vault because he was worried about people being interested in them, which is not likely. When I uncovered them, released them from the bank vault, I thought, well, I must look up. What did he write about the Titanic sinking in 1912? And I looked it up and it just went... Titanic sank. 
not a long dispatch. <laughs> anyway, okay. back to the king, king died. died. The yes. king died. <laughs> now, luckily, we have another record from the 10th century from somebody called Abbo of Fleury, who was a Benedictine monk. Now, he lived in the late 10th century, and we have a record from him when he visited the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is called Dunstan. Now, mm. he has this elaborate story, and I have to sort of tell you. So, he apparently was told by Dunstan that he remembers something from a long, long time ago that he heard from a very old man at the court of Athelstan, the king, from this man who in his youth had been Edmund's weapon bearer. So we are now nearly a century, but apparently if you look at the mouth, it doesn't actually work. So he had been told what actually happened when the king died. Certainly it was a lot more dramatic than this. The Vikings did win this fight, this battle, and Edmund escaped. And the Vikings then came for him. And they said, actually, we'd like you to be our sort of puppet king and rule under us. But Edmund said, well, I'll do that if you convert to Christianity, because I will not be ruled by pagans. And the Vikings said, no. That's not going to happen. So they tied him up to a tree and used him as target practice. Their archers shot arrows into him. He kept on refusing to give in. And then eventually he was taken off and beheaded. And the story then goes that the head of the king was thrown into the forest, into the bushes. Later on, the locals wanted to come and rescue their king. So they went searching for him. Nobody could find the head until they heard a voice calling out, hick, 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 or here, here, here. Follow the voice and they came across a very large wolf and between his paws was the king's head. And they then took the head back with this wolf that was now tame and reunited with the body and they miraculously fused together and the head was also incorrupted. So this is what turned him into a saint, essentially. He was buried on the spot and worshipped and soon became a very popular saint. Later on, he was moved to the local town called Beardricksworth, which is the town that later becomes Bury St. Edmund. His cult was hugely popular very, very quickly. One of the really interesting things is that this actually became Viking Scandinavian territory and he became hugely popular among the Scandinavians as well, even though they killed him in the first mm. place. Mm. So there's lots of coins dedicated to St. Edmund and he became hugely popular well, across the country over time. And he especially became popular among the English kings from 10th century and uh, all the way up to Henry VIII, really. All the kings would come and essentially come and visit his shrine. And this, I think, is why he became known as the patron saint, if there was such a thing. It was partially because he was seen as a symbol of essentially Englishness, because Athelstan, who was one of the first royals to really sort of worship St. Edmund, as it were, he was also really considered the, the first king of the English. And Edmund called himself on his coins Rex Anglorums, which could be king of the Angles or king of the English. We don't quite know what he meant by that. So that's sort of how he became so hugely popular. And in fact, the cult was spread uh, across Europe as well. Somebody, a later pre-Norman abbot called Abbot Baldwin, wanted to move him across all across Europe. He couldn't take any of the actual relics, any of the bones, because his body was meant to be whole and complete. So instead, he took a collection of blood-stained clothing to create contact relics that he could then move places like Rome to look at, even to Egypt later on. Crusaders took 
pieces of this clothing. He became very popular in Scandinavia, Iceland, Ireland. There's a monastery on a little island in the Oslo Fjord that I used to play in as a child. Uh, that's dedicated to St. Edmund, a medieval monastery. And his relics were moved eventually in the 11th century. He was actually moved by my favourite, Knut the Great, who also worshipped St. Edmund very much. And he built uh, or had commissioned a new abbey in very St. Edmunds. And that became the shrine to the saint himself. And one of the things I find most interesting, actually, about Edmund is what happened to his bones. So mm. like most of the saints... And his teeth. With the and, and his teeth. I've won his teeth so we can look at the <laughs> What would you give for his tooth? Well, I'd give a lot to yeah, those teeth, yes. actually. Yeah, I think I'd really like to find them. Yes. But maybe, maybe we can. So in the dissolution of the monasteries, that's as far as we know, that's where his bones disappeared. So we know that the shrine was there in Bury St. Edmunds up until 1539. But what happened then? We thought he was lost. And somebody's written a book, somebody called Francis Young, a historian, written a book on St. Edmund, thinks he might know what happened to him. Mm -hmm. And apparently we've got another record from the 17th century. It's a bit like that one of Abbo, where a man called William Hitchcock, who was a prior, his great-grandfather was apparently one of the monks at Bury St. Edmunds, just at the point of the dissolution. A monk that was allowed to have children. Yeah, so they were. So they could, oh, um, you might know about this, apparently that wasn't unusual, yeah. so they could leave the and monasteries. Keep on as a parish priest. Yeah, and then have, have children. Terrible one. At Crowland Abbey, they kept on one of the monks, the parish priest, but they didn't provide any means for the priest to support himself and the community watched him starve to death. Really? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's not. Make Very sure you've sorted out the T's and C's. Yes, yeah. definitely. Okay. But in this story, what apparently happened... <laughs> that's me trying to just Sorry. move on from your interruption <laughs> there. Um, so apparently the monks, at the sort of point of the dissolution... They knew that they had to protect this very important saint's bones. So they apparently put the bones, the coffin, into an iron chest, possibly one of the cloister muniment chests, large iron chests, because they were actually locked down in the monastic site because there was uh, an outbreak of plague and also they were forbidden to leave the precinct. So according to this record from his great-grandfather, they hid the bones in an iron chest somewhere. But they couldn't leave the environments. Where did it go? So apparently the most likely place is the Monk's Cemetery, which was just behind the Abbey Church, because a lot of them were dying of the plague anyway. So the theory is that this chest was actually buried within the Monk's Cemetery in Bury St. Edmunds. So in your face, Leicester with your Richard III under the car park. Yes. No one cares about him anymore. Guess even better, later on, that... Monk Cemetery actually had a tennis court built on top of it. So, really? king so under the tennis be. court. Well, tennis court is now removed. New and we have place. actually, I've been working with some of the local groups there to try and see if we can try and look for him. Under the tennis this, court. Under the tennis court in this giant thing. Stop playing. Tennis point is now, now removed, <laughs> so it's open. So, we could potentially do that. So, there we go. Can I tell you a story about him? Yes, please. You know the story about how he was discovered by the Vikings? He was fleeing the Vikings and he hid under a bridge in the village of. I think it's pronounced Hoxon. It's spelled H-O-X-N-E. I think it's pronounced Hoxon. 
Someone will tell me if it's wrong, or maybe there's a way of finding out disembodied voice, I don't know. And he hid under there, but there was a wedding that day, and as the bride went over the bridge, she saw his spurs glinting, and that's what gave him away, and she surrendered him to the Vikings, and thus he met his end. And I've been to the bridge, it's still there, actually, or a bridge is there at the site, and I had a spooky moment. Did you? A very spooky moment, yeah, and I was with a monk friend, and he said... Ah, there are places where the membrane between this world and the next world is very thin. Hoxney. Extraordinary. I love that. That awful moment when, you know, the spurs glinting. Were that story, would that be a story like the Angling of Saxon Chronicles, for example, the No, it could be for some of the other legends or later sagas, these stories get yeah yeah told and retold Sinjin, he's known as being quite a vengeful saint as well and he he's quite a sort of um, nasty saint great, a bit of a nasty saint he's yeah. quite serious and do you want to know my favorite fact which yeah, is related sadly. to that yeah. so remember knut so knut moved him and actually spent a hell of a lot of money establishing this abbey in his memory now another legend has it that knut's father swain forkbeard was killed by the ghost of St. Edmund oh. struck him down. So, I don't know. Maybe there was something funny going oh, on. Oh, well, you see, there are places where the membrane between this one yes. and the exactly. be struck down by a ghost. Yeah. There's always a problem with that in a kind of like ghost apology, phantomology, whatever it is, where the ghost is a wraith-like spirit that can pass through walls and stuff, but can mm. also hold a sword or a club. Yes. And we've got uh, a comment from our disembodied voice. Yes, so Edmund's glinting spurs were seen in Hoxne. I think that's how it's pronounced. H-O-X-N-E. Yeah, mm. thank you. There we go. It's, so, going to, it's a spooky old place. Alders. Yeah. Yes. Oh, Sparkling. It was a very, very spooky moment. Yes. Brilliant. I like St. Edmund. I, I do as well. I love the name Edmund. In fact, I had an uncle Edmund. And I have a son called Edmund. Such an English handsome name, I like it. I it's a good yes. solid name. Yes. You'd marry an Edmund, wouldn't you? Yes. Well, you wouldn't. I know I wouldn't. <laughs> I, I might. Yes, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's true. Athelstan's son was called Edmund, and there's a possibility that that was named after St. Edmund. We don't know Does him. it mean something? Does it have some Norse meaning? You know, well, it's not a Scandinavian name. I'm sure it does have a meaning. but An Anglo-Saxon name. Yeah. I wonder if it was Hans Stanton. If you got his tooth, if you dug up his tooth from underneath these tennis courts, yeah. you can find maybe some Hans Stanton. Can I say, what Hans Stanton's most famous for is a tennis festival each year. So there would be a theme. I didn't know yes. that. Yes, or Hunston, as the locals call it. Well, Hunston, yeah. A yeah. tennis festival yes. in Hunston. Yes, I and how bizarre, that. the tennis court connection in this story. I have sporting tales of sporting prowess from Hunston, from the Crazy Golf Course. I could see you being I've got a hole in one. That's amazing. Crazy golf. I love Crazy Golf. I love Crazy Golf That's too. That's good. Let's do we it. We should do That's rabbit holes too. Do you like Crazy Before, Golf? Well, I think we should have a sort of rabbit hole as pentathlon. So we've got that yes. and we've got Voga. Oh, yeah. one of my topics coming up is the trampoline. Oh. So why don't we have a go yes, at that? Yes, that's next. That you'd be good at it, though. Trampoline yes, you'd be really good. And roller derby. I suppose you have to do a roller derby. Oh yeah, God. we do. Get you to roller, roller skates. I can't roller skate. I've never tried. Well, there we go. That's another. <laughs> Cracking sound of I think we need to check ankles. if our insurance covers all of this. I'm not sure it does, but <laughs> try. Right, I think we're going to have to round it up there before we get too excited yes. about our field trips, but we'll, we'll do that, definitely. So, disembodied voice, can you please give us this week's winner? Saints seem lucky, don't they? So congratulations to Kat. Let's give it to you and to Edmund. 
this Very week. Cute. Now, listen here for some body voice. <laughs> While I rejoice in Cat's win and Charles' win in the last one, I'm beginning to wonder quite what the scores on the doors actually well, you are. You won the one if before that. An unevenness. You did win the one before that, Richard. Yeah. It seems so yeah. very You're long doing ago. very well. I don't think you should be complaining, really. Well, I don't know. Let's have some data, please. Well, the scores on the doors for the entire run of Rabbit Hole are Cat on 13, Richard on 13, Charles on 14. Mm. And for this season alone, season three, Cat on five, Charles on five, Richard on three. No, you see. Ooh. Gosh, you okay. you do keep an eye on it. I mean, I you know I, I just thought, sensed. I knew it was very level, <laughs> and um, I'm sure it'll even up very soon. Well, you say that. I have very very strong instinct for injustice in all its <laughs> yes. forms. Just saying. Yes. And uh, well, we'll see what happens. But I'm going to have to up my game, aren't I? Yeah. Maybe You're the one that usually board. says the scores don't matter. Well, that's just if I'm winning, of course. <laughs> right, now it's coming. It's taken us 41 episodes You've or something to get to the truth. Very good barrister, disembodied voice. You've got him to actually say it. Roll the tapes. Yeah. <laughs> right, well, on that, I think we need to just get cracking. So let's see what our next topics are going to be. Well, actually, funny you say about the trampoline because that is what you're going to be looking at this week. So yes. I expect all sorts of research. That's a great topic, actually. Trampoline. Yes. I hope so. and charles you're going to be researching freemasons Uh and i gonna have to research this one practically as well i think because my topic is lobsters how wonderful this is freemason on a trampoline holding a lobster (laughs) yes (laughs) i love this great well we better go and start revising because that's the end of this week's episode thank you everyone out there for listening Please do subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review because it really helps people find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to. And can I say, we love reading the reviews as well. Mm. They're fantastic. Yes. Really appreciate it. And you can send us an email if you like, especially to suggest a topic for us to fall down into. That's rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. So in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, it wasn't very civil of you to sit down without being invited. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.